Have you ever wondered what goes on behind the table at a dance competition? Exactly what are the judges looking for anyway? This is Making the Impact, a dance competition podcast. Each week, we'll cover a different topic related to the world of competitive dance from the perspective of the judges behind the table. One of the most common phrases we hear in dance is the ubiquitous, ballet is the foundation of all dance forms. Now, there may be some debate about the validity of this statement, but there's no doubt that strong ballet programs produce excellent dancers. In this episode of Making the Impact, we sit down with two incredible ballet educators to talk about how they developed their own ballet programs for competitive dance studios and how you can too. Hey everybody, welcome to this week's episode of Making the Impact. I'm your host, Courtney Ortiz, and I'm here with my co-host, Leslie Mailer. Hey everybody, happy almost the middle of February. Almost the middle of February, which is almost my birthday. Yay. Yay. Well, and almost to like the height of competition season too. Oh, yeah. It's here, y'all. It is about to be here. If it's not here (laughs) for you yet, it is is about to be here for a lot of you. And we love competition season over here at IDA because all of our judges get to go out and see fabulous talent around the world. And I just, I'm excited to continue to travel and judge around the country. This season, I'm working a lot with Revel, and I'm a teacher judge, so I get to talk to all the teachers out there. If you're listening, hey, uh, hope you like what I'm saying. <laughs> and I'm also judging a little bit for other competitions, too, just a regular good old judge, and I love it. So I can't wait to get into the heat of it, for sure. And speaking of competitions, over here in IDA World, I want to let everybody know that our IDA virtual competition is back, and we just reopened registration for our new solo-only event as of February 15th. So you're able to submit entries into our virtual competition until April 30th. So you have a a a few months, whether you want to send one in now or wait until the end once you've done your solo a few times at competition, or you can send it in multiple times because you're going to get new feedback from new judges each time you submit, which is really awesome. We really want our virtual competition to be utilized as a training tool for dancers to get that solid feedback, that personalized feedback and that detailed in-depth feedback. Because with our feedback, you will get an extra 10 to 15 minutes of start and stop style critique after your standard critique, where the judge goes back through, pauses the video, elaborates even more on the corrections. And it's just a really great service that I would love for you all to take advantage of. But our virtual competition, you will be able to compete against dancers from around the world, which is so exciting. And all contestants have the chance to be eligible for individual special awards, for sponsored overall prizes from our sponsors, and the chance to recompete for a brand new set of judges in our top 20 live stream challenge. So if you want to enter now on our website, entries start at $55, and you can learn more at impactdanceadjudicators.com slash virtual competition. And listeners, we could not do this podcast without the support of our amazing sponsors, and I want to tell you about one of them today. Dance Costumes by Urzua is a Queens-based dancewear and costume company that specializes in flattering, beautiful costumes for every body. In each style, they offer a variety of fits to make you feel and look amazing. Choose from tons of different fabrics, appliques, rhinestones, and more to customize your dream costume. And right now, you can receive 15% off of all costumes using the code IMPACT15 at checkout. So be sure to visit dancecostumesbyurzua.com for your 15% off. And I'm really excited to share one more final thing from IDA land that we are incorporating into competitions this season. And I've been wanting to do this for so many years and I finally made it happen. We are excited. Not only IDA, but the podcast is sponsoring 
a physical award at every IDA affiliated competition event this season, and it's called the Making the Impact Judges Choice Award. So if you are attending an IDA affiliated competition, which I'll give you a rundown of who those are so you can keep a lookout for this award, our judges, if there is at least one IDA judge on the panel at that event, our judges will select a dance that made an impact to them throughout the entire weekend. It can be a solo through production, but it needs to be something that they are still thinking about by the end of the weekend. And whether it was executed beautifully through their choreography or their expression and performance, whatever it is that the judges just can't stop thinking about, we want to recognize you. And every winner of this physical award, which will be given out at the last award ceremony at each event, will get a shout out on our podcast, which is so cool. So if you get the Making an Impact Award this season at an IDA competition, let us know, snap a photo, tag us, share it, and be sure to register your award so we can give you a shout out live on the air. To give you a heads up as to where these awards will be distributed, they will be at Axis Dance Competition, Decca Dance Competition, Diva Dance Competition, Dive Dance Competition, Epic Dance Showcase, Gems Dance Competition, High Demand Dance Comp, ID Dance Comp, Just Dance Invitational, Positive Vibes Dance Competition, Spirit of Dance Awards, Star Talent Productions, and True Dance Challenge. So wow, there's a lot of awards being given out this season, y'all. So I hope you get it. I hope you are the judge's choice at an IDA-affiliated competition event. And thank you to all of our IDA competitions who support IDA. Let's jump into this episode. I'm so excited to be bringing ballet back to the podcast this week. And we had a ballet episode back in season one where we talked about the importance of training in ballet as a competitive dancer. But today we're actually going to talk about how to implement a ballet program into your competitive studio. So I'm super excited to have two brand new guests joining us on the podcast. And first up, I would love to welcome Addison Holmes to Making the Impact. Welcome, Addison. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. (laughs) Yes, super excited to have you. Thanks for joining us and also suggesting this topic to me as an option for season three. So we're really excited to dive in and hear all about your program at your studio that you work with. So please feel free to tell the world a little bit more about who you are, where you're based, your training, any career credits you'd like to share and what you're working on now. Okay, great. So I am the ballet director and I'm on my fifth season at Shannon Mather School Mather Dance Company. And we're here in Northern Orange County, basically by Anaheim. And she hired me five years ago. She really wanted to... Now, Shannon's Canadian, so super Royal Academy of Dance, RID background, always, you know, had such an importance in ballet. Um, When she was at Dance Precision, she had Francisco Gela as her ballet teacher. Um, So she's always known how important ballet is, but she wanted an actual program. So she wanted to stop having just ballet teachers and she wanted a director to have a program to start competing at YGP, to start doing ballet exams, RAD exams, and to really have this importance. You know, it's one thing to say like your ballet training is so important, your ballet training is so important. And then kids come, you know, t-shirts, shorts, whatever, ballet classes an hour long. Well, that's, you, you know, you're not saying ballet is important. If you can't, have a program, have it structured and compete it. I don't understand, you know, having a competition studio saying ballet is so important and then being afraid to compete it. And I'll dive in later about the fears and, you know, being so empathetic to those fears, but, you know, just grabbing it and starting to compete ballet. And so 
I started about five years ago. It's, you know, it's been really successful. The kids have totally grown and changed their, you know, fears or uh, inhibitions in ballet. And my background is, you know, I grew up in a professional ballet school for Texas Ballet Theater, and we did ballet exams for RID. So I went from tiny pre-primary all the way up, you know, learning advanced and solo seal. And we also competed. So I had mother and daughter ballet teachers, and they were from South Africa, and they're just fantastic. So they had, you know, royal ballet training, but they also, the daughter Lindette was a showgirl and worked in Vegas and did musical theater. They would bring in John Crutchman and Alan Sherfield, and we would do lyrical and we would do jazz. So I always had that competition kid in me. And I have always loved the competition world. And I've always known that they could bridge and come together, that you didn't have to have this like classical academy separate from, you know, your competition kit. And now we're seeing with uh, university programs like USC with William Forsyth and, you know, getting into Juilliard and going to these amazing universities that they are really loving ballet dancers and they're really loving competition kids. And I do think that the worlds are combining, you know, there's a little still old school apprehension with some of the competition, you know, kids. And, you know, I would love to dive in and talk about those stigmas and like, let's get rid of them. And I think that's only going to make your studio grow. Your parents are going to love competing in ballet because you're learning, you know, 100, 200 year old repertoire. You're seeing your kid in a beautiful classical costume on stage. And really like the parents love it. The parents love going to YGP and other ballet competitions we'll all talk about in this episode. And I think it's just so important to start doing like, let's get over the stigma. Let's get over the fear. Let's bring it to our studio. Let's do it the right way. And it brings a little discipline. You know, I have uniforms at my school. So each level has a color and they absolutely love that. And it just brings like a little more structure. We don't have any hour ballet classes past age five. So we have all hour and a half or two hour ballet classes which is really important because you can't dive into the work and get individualistic and get kind of in the meat of everything without having those lengthy classes. So yeah, I grew up at a ballet school and then I danced for Texas Ballet Theater and I've lived in LA and New York and I've actually done a ton of commercial work and industrial work and a ton of equity musical theater work, equity dancer, probably about 20 musical theaters, you know. I also was a backup dancer for Natasha Benningfield in Europe and Vienna, Austria. And so I'm like all over the place. And it's, it's proof that you can have like be this ballet person, but be an employable dancer. So that's me. And I'm a mom. I've got two kids. I'm tired. (laughs) (laughs) I do a lot. I'm tired. And I'm actually the director of a ballet competition and convention, which Jason is on faculty for. So we'll talk about that too. Oh, cool. So that's called Icon Dance. And it's a little different than some of the ballet competitions. It's a little heavier on the classes and the education. So it's more like a convention style. So yeah, we can talk about that too. So that's me. (laughs) Awesome. Thank you, Addison, for joining us. Excited to have you and can't wait to dive into this episode. But before we do, I have to introduce you to our next special guest, who's a brand new, he's a judge, but he's a brand new guest on this episode. And I have actually judged alongside him at Revel Dance Convention previously, and I've had the pleasure of 
watching his talented dancers hit the stage, which I'm always so impressed by. They're so beautifully trained. And I knew that you would be the perfect person to join us on this chat, Jason. So I'm excited to welcome Jason Kuzner to the podcast. Welcome. Thank you, Courtney. Thank you, Leslie. It's great to be here. Great to talk about this important subject. I guess you want me to jump into those same similar questions that Adam yeah. had for Addison. My background, it's funny, you know, Addison was trained by South Africans. I am South African. And I have a different beginning. I started off as a very ardent observer of dance. I, I wasn't allowed to dance growing up when I did in South Africa. And my sister did, but I always wanted to. You know, it was something that I was deeply passionate about, even from a very, very young age, from nine, 10 years old. It's something that I knew that I wanted to do and wanted to be involved in. And so, you know, during the time period, because, and, and, you know, the way society was at the time, I mean, you would think we talk about the 1950s, but we're really not. <laughs> we, you know, all I could do was really watch. So I used to go and I watched my sister's dance classes. I used to go to every single dance competition event in South, in, in Cape Town where I grew up. And, you know, in, in Cape Town, they, were, there's, they do a public adjudication. So at the end of every heat, which is kind of very European, right? So at the end of every heat, they, the adjudicator, one adjudicator, that's all that they had at the time, would get up and give an assessment of the heat at the time. So there may have been like 10, 12 to 13-year-old dancers in that particular heat, and they would give a whole spiel about, and there was no soft, hmm. soft gentle language. It was very clear. <laughs> it was very, very specific. It was what they saw, what they didn't see, and, and what they can do to, what the dancers can do to improve, improve on the work that they did. So I got a lot of information as a non-dancer at the time through the years, literally. I mean, I sat in those competitions for seven, eight years like that. So you're getting all this theory, all this dance theory being fed into you. And then by the time I was 17 years old, I, I wanted to come to America and I wanted to pursue musical theater because at the time that was really, you know, where, where I was at. And it was a way that I could get around, you know, we, we progressed by that point and I could get around the whole dancing thing. So I had a voice, I can sing, I can act, but I could really, it would not give me the opportunity to dance. So at 17 years old, I started dancing. I was finally allowed to. And so for, for the year before I came to America to audition, I was in private ballet lessons. I was in private Horton technique classes. I was taking private jazz lessons. And I was jumping into class with nine and 10 year olds. Listen up, ladies and gentlemen, I was jumping into <laughs> class with nine and 10 year olds because I wanted to dance. It wasn't, it wasn't about age. It was about learning. And so, you know, which I think in hindsight, just talking about really helps me understand why I think about dance the way I think about dance and why it is it's, it, it's about doing what you need to do to get where you want to go. And we can't be so obsessed with the age and the level and the schmevel, whatever. It doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter. Anyway, I digress. So then I go and then I, so I come to America. I start auditioning for college programs. I get into, I got into Elon University's BFA musical theater program, which was amazing. That was one of the most important formative four years of my life. I had the most incredible teachers. I remember getting into, into ballet class and jazz class and modern class for the first time. And it was like backdraft. It's like all this theory in my head went whoosh into the body. I mean, it's, and, and I, I really learned to dance. Within a year, I was dancing. 
it's a you know it's amazing how that information just permeated into the body so quickly but yeah but then there were things that i didn't have because i didn't start early i don't have the feet i don't have the turnout i don't have all of those things and so there's that aspect of it however you know i was dancing and so by this by the by my sophomore year i was ta in classes already and i knew that this was something that i loved that I had deep passion for sharing that theory sharing sharing dance technique and watching the change happen in the bodies and watching the change happen in the mind as dan as the dance started to manifest and and let's say populate throughout the body right the muscles start to organize the bones start to organize that's all that delicious stuff so i knew i had a gift for that already by my sophomore year and I, and I loved it. And so I ended up minoring in dance on top of the BFA in musical theater and business administration. Then I jumped on a Broadway national tour, the Broadway national tour of Kiss Me Kate, right after college. But through college, I was doing tons of regional theater. I've done over 20 production, or 20 production, kind of like Addison, a regional theater. And by the time I was done halfway through the tour, the, the Kiss Me Kate tour, I was like, I started teaching dance to the ensemble because I was, dare I say it, I was bored on the road. I was bored. I mean, I found, I found the touring mundane and, and it was like, I needed more. This was not stimulating enough for me. And it sounds kind of bratty because it's like, you know, first Broadway national tour, but nah, not, not quite. This is not quite what I, what I'm seeing for myself right now, which is great to be in a position where you have that choice. So I started teaching class. I was like, this, I really have a knack for this. I want, I want to know more about this. I didn't, I want to know theory. I want to know how, I want to understand choreographic structure. I want to understand um, pedagogy and I want to understand the theory behind the pedagogy, all that kind of yummy stuff. So I started applying for, for MFA programs in dance and cut a long story short, I ended up getting a full artistic scholarship to the MFA dance program at Southern Methodist University in Dallas. And after that, I moved to LA and I started teaching at various studios, you know, I started doing the grind with, and for me, the grind was, hey, let me show you what I can do. You don't have to pay me for the class. Let me just come in and show you what I want to do. Because I, I, I started, I wanted to teach a ballet-based program because that's where I was most comfortable because that's what I was most familiar with. I wasn't, I wasn't familiar with the competition world in America, which I've actually come to adore and love every aspect of it in so many ways. You know, people, people, I think ballet people are we snobby about this? No, we snobby about technique. We're not snobby about the venue. About where, we're not snobby about where the venue in which it's performed because a performance opportunity is a performance opportunity, and that's what and that's what competition and conventions really provide for for these kids. So I wasn't very familiar with it, and when I moved to LA, I eventually started started really understanding it and wanting to learn more about it because it, it was really competition based schools that were responding to my inquiries, right? I, I talked for them, talked for a lot of, you know, both ballet and, and competition schools. And even when I was in Dallas at my MFA program, I was, I was teaching for ballet program, really good ballet programs, um, which Addison's all familiar with because she was there. Talked for her, actually, for Addison's teachers at Dallas Dance Academy. That was my first job in Dallas when I was doing my MFA. Sorry, I backtracked a little bit. Anyway, I was trying to tie the knot there where Addison and I really start. Our connection happens. But... About around 2015, I had the opportunity to go into a studio. It was dying. The program was dying. It was a ballet program. And I was like, okay, so I've been teaching now for ex an extended amount of time. I would say at this point, it's 10 years of teaching. 
And what I noticed was there's some amazing things about competition schools and the training in competition schools, but there's also a lot of not so amazing things about it. And then the same thing applies to the ballet program. Great things in ballet, some ballet schools and ballet programs, but a lot of not so great things about it. Why don't I take the two of them and just put them together and create a program around that? Take away the nonsense, take away the stuff that I don't like, the stuff that I don't agree with, that, that I, you know, I'm just saying I, I, because it's, I guess it's, at, at the end of the day, is my opinion about it. You know, everyone's got their own feelings about, about it all. But, you know, my perspective as an, as a, as an academic, being, my mind being inquiry and progression and progress, I'm like, okay, we can do things differently here. Let's, let's take the mind games and the emotion out of ballet and the emotional abuse out of ballet. And let's, and let's take the, the noise of the competition, competition schools out of the, out of competition. Noise being trophies are important. First place is important. Blah. All these things that are actually irrelevant to your progress or your potential career as a professional. Let's take that out of the picture and let's just put the work together. So for me, it was how do we take the work from both sides and put the work together and, and take away all that other noise that just gets in the way of progress and training. And so I started Burbank Dance Academy in 2015. We are now, are we going into our seventh season? I mean, does COVID really count? So can I say like, we're going to our fifth season, <laughs> take, away, take away two years. But, you know, we're, we're still around, we're going strong. And, and, since, and since day one, my dancers have been achieving really nicely at, at all competitions with a ballet foundation as their base for their training. So the, pro the program, I market the program as a ballet-focused program. It's not, I don't say we are a strict classical ballet school. We are a ballet-focused program because I'm insistent that my dancers are taking tap and jazz and lyrical and contemporary and hip-hop. Very important. You know, so, so that we are developing a well-rounded cross-trained dancer but with ballet as the foundation of what they do. Because in my experience, and I know this is a controversial statement, ballet is the foundation of Western dance. And I'm throwing Western dance in there because jazz and modern are all based on being, uh, having their roots in ballet or using ballet or being the anti-ballet. So it's, it, it, ballet has always been the starting point for each one of those modalities in, and adding different influences into that. However, also in my experience, the intrinsic lessons learned by the body through classical ballet are really, really helpful to non-Western dance forms. So although the, the non-Western dance forms started, often started before classical ballet was even around, I have found that in a commercial presentation of non-Western dance, hip-hop, Bollywood, Bharatanatyam, whatever it is, those dancers tend to have better mastery and presentation of their facility when they have come from a ballet background. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm so excited to yeah, go even further with this, but this is amazing. And I totally agree, Jason. And I'm so happy to have both of you, Jason and Addison, here to share these perspectives with our lovely listeners out there who are a lot are mainly very much co competitive based. This is a competition podcast. So I think that a lot of a lot of this information that we might share might be brand new perspectives that 
this audience hasn't heard before, which is totally why we do this podcast <laughs> thing over here, y'all. So this is great. I can't wait to chat more. So let's jump on in. Leslie, you ready? Yeah. Well, and so Addison and Jason, thank you so much for spending your time with us. And after hearing about your backgrounds, I, I see why Courtney was like, these people, these people are it. <laughs> and I was like, okay, great. And you are, you're it. You're the people for this episode. But I also find it interesting that Courtney, you mentioned our studio spotlights earlier and about how those programs, you know, have developed. And I think 80% of them so far have cited ballet as being the number one thing that they want their kids to do in the studio. Like everybody has to take six to eight hours of ballet a week on top of everything else. And so that's great to hear that, you know, y'all's programs are pretty much the same. And it does kind of speak to why it is important and why the most successful studios you hear about are the ones who focus on ballet first, in addition to all the other things, like you said, Jason, that, you know, are influenced by ballet or that could, you know, and I've always said too, ballet is not going to not help you. Like, even if you're a hip hop dancer, something in ballet will help you. Maybe it's not going to help you, you know, 100% of the time in every single hip hop style, but something you can take a nugget and it'll be great. Like, <laughs> and so I think, you know, people who argue against that, I, I disagree. Anyway, let's get into ballet programs at both of your schools. So Addison, you're um, directing at Mather Dance Company. Can you tell us, first of all, you started the ballet company or the, the program five years ago. What did it look yes. like before you came? What does it look like now? So before I came, they had two ballet teachers and they had a decent amount of hours. Both ballet teachers have beautiful resumes and are very strong dancers and teachers. So that wasn't the issue. They both have opposite ways of teaching. Ah. So the kids were getting like happy, loving one teacher and rush, you know, um, kind of general American ballet, I want to say, you know, not specific to a syllabus. And then they were getting very strict Russian teaching. So the kids were like loving coming to this class, but this class, sometimes she would use fun music and hip hop music and, and she was teaching great technique. She's a wonderful person. Then they were getting Russian ballet teacher who was teaching great technique, but was more, you know, I'm going to the gear off in 1973. And so they were getting like these two polar opposites and it just wasn't a program. And she really wanted that. Um, so the kids were getting good technique, but it wasn't making sense as a program. And I think that's the issue with some studios who will say like, we have six hours of ballet a week. We have eight hours of ballet a week. And I tell them to point their feet and we do this. And it's like, but are you working with your teacher or teachers on really having a program? Right. Is and it a there holistic is a approach to now, ballet? Yeah. Consistency. And you don't necessarily have to do Chiquetti or R.A.D. But you do need to have something that makes sense where you're coming in every week and it's developing. And it's also working for the choreography that they're doing in lyrical and contemporary and musical theater. Like we talk, I talk a lot with Shannon about what's, you know, what's on the docket for the kids. And then her assistant, Nicole, that does a lot of um, the younger choreography. And it's like, what are you seeing in jazz? What are you seeing in their solos? What are they doing this year? Let me develop so it makes sense at the bar. And so it's really just kind of structuring your house. It's organizing your house. 
So it's not that some of these ballet teachers are not given enough hours and it's not that some of them are not knowledgeable or not teaching correctly, but you know, they're not, are you coming in with a program? Are you coming in and, and disciplining and organizing these kids? Like Jason's really brilliant at the kind of mind body connection. Is it, is it, are you being conscientious about your teaching and about and your program? Like and I think if you're at a competition studio, there's so much money that goes into that training from your parents that those kids deserve a program. And it's easy to do. And honestly, it's fun to do. It's really fun as a teacher. It gives you a sense of like, I'm not just like phoning it in and doing Tombe Potabregli, Sad Potashaw every class. I'm actually like looking at their solos and I'm looking at what they're doing in acro and I'm looking at what their body needs. Does your body need rest in these moments? Does your body need more petite allegro? What does your body need? And then you look at the trajectory of where are your kids going? Are, are a lot of my kids wanting to audition for university? Are some of them wanting to do kind of cruise ship and these things? And, and I can develop all of that knowing what kind of auditions they're about to go to. So I think it's, I also think it's fun and you just get really excited about it. And then you get like refreshed and, you know, and so you as the teacher and the kids and the parents, I think really do deserve a program. Yeah. And it sounds like in, in your, in Mather's case, that nobody's excluded. And I would, I would venture to guess that if you're a studio that maybe doesn't have a lot of ballet or you have a ballet teacher, they probably feel a little excluded because it's like, I'm a ballet teacher. I come from this world. I don't do that. Or maybe the opposite is you're a ballet teacher. You come from that world. You come in and teach the tondus and we're going to do our competition dance. Right. And like what it sounds like at Mather is that like, we're a family. We do this together. You're involved in, like you said, you're watching the solos. You're kind of navigating who needs what. Like that sounds like the ticket right there. Yeah. And it really does work and it's really exciting. So Two seasons ago, the last season of World of Dance, our kids went on and they won. It was amazing. It was this crazy experience, won a million dollars. So it was three of them. It was Shannon's daughter, our main boy, Diego, and then Shannon's assistant, Nicole, her little sister. So it was just this like like full team moment. And that was so much fun to watch those kids go and film and like what does their technique need and we would like sit on the floor and I would sit with Shannon so yeah it does become a family and you're totally right the ballet teacher does not need to be this like cold elitist outside person because honestly we're really not if you really get to know most ballet teachers we are crazy and wild and fun and like Jason (laughs) said we love competition ballet is the Jason said this before and it's my favorite I mean, ballet is the original flash and trash. Like, look at a ballet variation. There's big legs and big turns and 32 foot days and big jumps. Yeah. I mean, you cannot watch a classical pas de deux coda without seeing a million jumps and legs and right. catches. And a big flashy and tutu and the partner. Yes, yeah. Yeah. it is. So You're right. we <laughs> like this. This is actually our jam. We love this. Right. We love fully decked costumes. So bring us into your world and we don't need to be, you know, separate. And I absolutely agree. It's, and we don't need to phone in the same technique over and over, connect your retire, connect your retire. You know, that's not, that's not making the kids bodies and muscle memory really makes sense. So you got to dive in a little deeper. It's kind of like take a little more energy in the, the top of your program, but it, it, man, it makes such a huge difference. Like get creative, get creative with your choreography in ballet class. 
And that's going to only help them with hip hop and the intricacies of hip hop and their, you know, floor work and contemporary and making sure they're protecting themselves as they go to the floor when we do all the footwork and ballet. So it really is harmonious. Totally. Jason, tell me about your program and how you decided to structure it and what it looks like on in the best case scenario, non-COVID aside, like best case scenario, your studio does this. Okay. So listen, my experience is different. Addison came into a program to restructure. I started a program. However, the principles of how I started the program are very similar to how Addison restructured her program, listening to that. I think that the most important thing is faculty cohesion. They have to be cohesive. We have to be talking from the same script. We have to be operating from the same playbook. So I take that charge very seriously so that through line is brought into every single class that we teach. So I have, because I'm very blessed to have an incredible faculty at my school, they have years of experience. They have teaching records. They have performance records as professional dancers, et cetera, et cetera. I don't want to stifle that knowledge and 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 the sharing of that knowledge at all. And I understand that I'm lucky because I live in LA and have access to that. A lot of studios don't have access to that. So the way that I approach it is a little bit different, but the principle of it is the same. I am still the director of the school and I have a very specific charge for my dancers on a, on a let's call it a month-to-month basis. I want those knees straight and I want that rotation working from the hip beautifully with a strong supporting leg. I'm not seeing that in the classes. This is what I want to see throughout. So I don't care whether you come from, whether you come from a Vaganova base, a Shakedi base, or an RAD base. The principles of turnout are the same. Use your methodology, how you know it, to share it with the kids. They will, each kid, as we know, responds differently to different, to different triggers, right? So the way you say it may not resonate, but the way another teacher says it will resonate. And we are repeating that on a consistent basis. The same thing goes in the jazz class and the contemporary class and the improv class. We talk about the same things. So there's like a theme, like for the month, knees over toes, theme for the month, getting that, that's that nice scoopy line from hip to toe, theme of the month, getting on that supporting leg, making the rich, make sure the rich is really nice and high and the knees pulled back, those kind of things. So I make sure that we have those strong focuses throughout the program consistently. But I really do want my faculty to teach from, from what they know and from their experience. So I will not micromanage the content of the class. I manage the overall arch of what it is that I want achieved that semester, that month, that week, whatever it is. So that would be the, how I structure my program. Again, it's pulled through into jazz, hip hop, tap, whatever. Whatever, whatever other subject we are offering, we pull those same ideas, the same principles. It's very important that faculty are on the same page. We have a conversa- we have conversations. We talk about it. I'm constantly in conversation with my faculty. I am not an absentee director. I am there. I am teaching classes. I teach all the supplement like a lot of the supplemental classes in my studio. I can teach a ballet class, but so can everyone else. What do I do that is, that is my own? And that's the supplemental stuff. It's, conte- it's contemporary technique for ballet dancers. It is ballet elements class for 
intermediate through advanced dancers focusing on fundamentals because I think that we forget about these fundamentals. We start to become more advanced and all of a sudden we think that we don't have to focus on plies anymore, right? Right. It's just we get through it. You don't ever get through it. They are fundamentals for a reason. I always use the example. It's like you go, I mean, Courtney, you're in New York and you still take class. You go to, you go to beginner intermediate classes and you go to half, half of ABT in the beginner intermediate classes. Because we want to be able to take the time to focus on those fundamentals, which give the body the support it needs to protect it from injury. If those fundamental muscles are in check and the alignment is in check and the body organization is in check, we stand a better chance of having longevity as dancers. You know, so, so my program, so the program is very much focused on that. I really want strong technique. My, my, we are doing, I would say that in my like academy and my academy level classes, also with, like with Addison, we don't have any classes that are less than an hour and a half long. My academy level are taking two hour of two hour ballet classes, but even my jazz classes, hour and a half, contemporary tech, an hour and a half, because we need to. I think if we have some, I, I I have something to say. My teachers have something to say, and if we don't allow that time, we can't. They can't share really what they have you know, as their kind of like intellectual property, which is why I have my faculty at my school. I want you to share your intellectual property with my, with my dancers. But again, keeping it unified across the board to make sure that there's a consistency in the training across all genres of dance. So they are dancing like a, I would say that we are taking, if they, if six, six days of the week we're training, we've got six ballet classes a week that we're being offered. We're being offered probably up in pre-academy four. We are, that's every, we've got everyday offerings. When we go into the lower levels, so your five, your five to nine, ten-year-olds, we've got we got we drop down to like four times a week, three times a week, two times a week. Because I still I still consider that them recreational dancers in the amount of time they're prepared to devote to their dancing. So I use that word recreational very very cautiously because I think it's that I, I know this is a, a sidestep, but the word recreational has become distorted in our industry. Recreational is the amount of times a week you are devoting to an activity. It is not about the quality of training that the dancer or the, or the person doing the activity should be receiving. And I think that's a very, very important distinction. It's become very bastardized in our, in our industry. It's become an excuse not to give dancers the best possible training that you can provide. So that's, so I'll, I'll step back away from that because I just, that is a very important thing that I, that I, that I want to share because you do your dances a disservice when you treat them with this bastardized recreational perspective. I, it's, it's not, it's not fair to them because you never know what that dancer is now eight or nine or 10 years old. They're coming once or twice a week. I've got a pre-professional young dancer program and I have got with, which is every single day for ages nine through 11. And I can tell you that those little rec dancers are all of a sudden saying, oh, we want to be in that program. And so now I'm okay. Not, I don't even have to audition them because I know what's being taught in their two times a week that they're, getting that they're getting class. So they are absolutely equipped to jump into a more intensive program because their fundamental technique is in check. So yes. it's very that's very important for oh, me. Oh, yeah. Dance costumes are the final touch to make your vision come to life on stage. 
Whether you're looking for a simple and sleek design, or maybe you want to be covered in rhinestones from head to toe, Dance Costumes by Urzua is here to make your custom costume dreams come true. If you're still finalizing your costumes for the competition season, contact Dance Costumes by Urzua now to receive a quick quote and they'll get started on creating you a -a one-of-a-kind costume. Also, take advantage of our exclusive promo code for making the impact. Use the code IMPACT15 at checkout. That's IMPACT15 on costumes and dancewear to receive 15% off your entire purchase. Check out all of their designs now at dancecostumesbyurzua.com. I'm so with you on that. I I really love that you said that. And yeah, it's it's really it's really comes down to the the quality of training and and what is being offered. And it's like you said, it doesn't have to always be about how many hours. It's the quality of the class that you're taking and and what you're putting into the classes as well. Because I think a lot of times, especially approaching ballet talk from the judging perspective. You, I'm sure there are people out there listening that have that have heard a judge say on a critique, "This dancer just needs to take, you know, more ballet, more ballet, more ballet, more ballet." More ballet. Well, what does that mean? Well, yes, I mean they probably are taking some ballet, but what? How are they approaching class, and are they making the most of that one ballet class? Are they, and how are, is the teacher approaching class? Yes, like Addison says, is that teacher just phoning it in right. and saying retire, retire, connect your retire, but like not then giving them some imagery or approaching it from a different angle or having it be a through line, like Jason said, into the jazz class. Right. Like, There's you know, definitely you can be taking six days of bad ballet. Right. Exactly. You could <laughs> yes. be taking how I mean, just you could be, be putting honest, the time yes. in, but you're not putting the, the quality yeah. and the focus into that ballet class. You could you could be an exceptional dancer and take one awesome ballet class a week with a solid teacher that you're putting your a thousand percent effort in and you're self-correcting yourself. And you're making the most of it. Or you could take, like you said, Leslie, six, very mediocre. You're not giving your best, but I'm here and I showed up type of class. (laughs) Can I I just, I want to jump in and just like riff off of that a little bit, because I think you're touching on a very, very important point. I was teaching in a, a college program, a newer college program that was trying to, it was commercially based and it had a ballet element to it. And what I learned very quickly from that environment, which I think applies even more so to studios, understand your studio culture and understand what it is you're providing for your dancers. If you are a competition school that has aspirations of winning everything at every competition that you have, and your focus is on routines, choreography, et cetera, et cetera, where does ballet fit into that equation for you? So we don't have to be training every dancer to go and audition for Houston Ballet or the Bolshoi or the Kirov or San Francisco Ballet. We have to train the dancers. We have to expose the dancers to ballet training that is going to be germane to what their ultimate goal is, which will ultimately be what your studio's focus will be. So if you are that competition studio, and your dancers are only taking that one ballet class a week or that two ballet classes a week, you actually need to have a teacher who understands that, who doesn't have an an agenda that serves anything other than knee straight, toes pointed, turned out, extension, leaps, turns, right? Those are the things that you need to hit 
in those ballet classes and use the ballet methodology to help augment the dancer so that when they get on the stage or when they get into the rehearsal, they have got those aesthetic elements down pat. You don't need to be doing anything else in that ballet class. You know, that's one of the things that I go into a lot of competition schools to do is let's go and create a syllabus for your program that is ballet based so that we are getting that fundamental technique in there without having to go through an entire ballet syllabus that actually has nothing to do with what these dancers want to do ultimately at the end of the day. We can still have respect for ballet. We can still respect the, the history of it. We can still expose them to all that knowledge base, to all of those luminary figures within the ballet, where we can still give them that ballet education, but we don't have to be teaching gargliards in class. And then, it's <laughs> oh my not, God, not a gargliard. Right, right. It's like, whoa, That's my how, favorite. Does that, how, does, how does that serve the right. competition, the high-level competition dancer yeah. who is doing the jazz, like a hard-hitting jazz routine that is very turn, or let's call it trick-based. It doesn't serve them because as a judge, yeah. we know I want to see a high relevé. I want to see a straight knee. I want to see that passe nice and high, that knee pulled back if we turned out, that heel presented forward, regardless of what that genre is. I want to see that you turned out when you're supposed to be turned out, that you parallel when you parallel. I want to see the knees tracking in the appropriate place. I want to see those the clarity of transition. I want to see that that opposition elongation. It's all and it's all that's all that can all be covered in ballet class, and it can be done once or twice a week. And that's what I was really going to say. I was just going to mention that the kind of ballet program like you're talking about that serves the kind of studio you are, I think also can even apply up until college because you you started talking about that and it immediately took me back. I went to Oklahoma City University, which is a American dance Okay, Joe program. Rowan, get it. Yes, yes Joe Rowan. But yeah. for, for about two years, we had a ballet teacher <laughs> who came from the ballet and modern world. OCU does not teach modern. They do not teach us to go be in a contemporary right. company. They teach us to be an American right. dance style person, which includes ballet. We took ballet five days a week. But this one teacher yeah. came in and was just disgusted with all of us because we were not training to be ballerinas. And I remember it, the morale in those classes was so, a lot of us liked ballet. I liked ballet. But the way she treated us yeah. as if we were not as good as somebody who is in a ballet and modern based dance program at a university where I paid $40,000 a year to attend your school. Right. <laughs> right. You know, and like it can, that kind of teacher in, in the wrong place is, is a morale Toxic. It's toxic. You know, it's, it's, it's toxic. toxic. It can ruin it can ruin your program. It can ruin yeah. your it students ruin. and the parents. And so I think that's such a, a wonderful point to bring up that like you don't have to train your kids to be prima ballerinas, but you do have to find a good ballet teacher who fits in the world of your studio. Right. Yeah. Or find people that can your help, agendas. You, help you do that. Find yeah. people that can help you do that. Yeah. There are people that will that will help you do that. I know Addison would do that if someone I'm, I I do it I do it I go in and say look you need to let's let's take a look at where yeah. the training is and these are these are the elements that we need yeah. to fix in in the dan in the dancers and and create a syllabus that they can hit where they can hit these these elements hard yeah. once or twice a week you know and yeah. it goes back to the and I think there's probably a lot of people that are listening to this thinking like and hearing how your programs are structured at your studios and saying like. Wow, they they take hour and a half ballet classes. Like our studio doesn't have the space, At the time seven, yeah. <laughs> for that. There's not enough time in the day right. or the week to take that 
But at the end of the day, I think it goes back to what you mentioned earlier, Jason. It's a, it goes to the fundamentals. You can be really just focusing on those key fundamentals, going back to basics, taking the night, like jumping into that extra ballet class with the youngins. If, if that's all that's offered. But it's, I think that a lot of the feedback that we as judges give to studios who might not have that same amount of quality ballet training that you hope to have or are able to have at your studio, it's most of the time my critiques are always, we need to go back to basics and work on alignment and work on on releve and and those things that you just listed. And those really can start from the ballet bar, regardless how many times a week you're doing it. Exactly. And it should be taken into the other genres as well. If you are taking a jazz class and you are not having a technically based I don't care if the, uh, the class is 45 minutes long, 15 to 20 minutes of that class should be focused on fundamental technique. Yes. Your teacher, teachers need to be creative and they need to be able to incorporate that into the work. I have found that at a lot of schools, we throw away this warm up. It's a mm-hmm. rote warm up. It's, yeah. it's that plie, that flat back thing. It's like the swing across. Yeah. It's like with no kind of like rhyme or reason for that. If you if these kids are only taking one ballet class a week, that through line has got to be pulled into the warm up for every single one yeah. of those other genres that they right. are taking. You can't just it can't be well, these hello, throwaway we classes. Well, hello, turnout in jazz, right? All the time, we, <laughs> there's we so turn much turnout work in jazz. In jazz, yeah. all the time, and knowing yeah. what the difference is, like we have to know that in ballet, this is how we find our rotation, and then knowing what a clean parallel position is. For some reason, yeah. if dancers don't even know what to, how to turn out properly, they're never going to be able to find yes. a true parallel stance either. And because you're using the same muscles. And a really good ballet, a really good ballet teacher when they're when we're younger, we actually work parallel a lot yes. more than yeah. people think we do in ballet. Yeah. So yes. they are very complimentary. Yeah. Your 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 rotators are your rotators. They move like this. Right. They, they move rotate in different directions. Move, yeah. They rotate in different directions. So. <laughs> So an actual parallel position is an engagement of the rotator that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I, I mean, I, I don't know if anyone sees the video, but it's like, we go, <laughs> we go out, I don't think so. We're going outwards, you know, we're standing straight, but we're taking the rotators and we're pulling them towards the, the, the walls on the outside, the, the side walls of the room. The rotation's going that way. When, you know, we turn out, we're thinking about the inner thigh flesh, the top of the inner thigh and the flesh of the inner thigh coming forward. You know, it's different. Yeah. Now going back to going back to for any studio owners listening, people might be surprised. Mather, we only work four days a week. So we only have classes Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. We have a couple like little kid extra little things Friday, but we don't have a six day program. So we it's quality over quantity. Now we do 11 months out of the year. We don't start any choreography except for some YGP variations and icon variations, but we don't start any group choreography until January. So we take all of our fall is only training. No training classes ever will be replaced with choreography. So then going into spring, they still have all their training. They just have, we have mandatory weekends where we learn choreography on the weekends. And, but yeah, we don't have six days a week. So some people might be surprised. You don't, so that's where I want to go back into. You don't have to have a six-day-a-week ballet program because I don't want people to listen to this and go, well, we don't have that luxury of that. But no, and I can help do that. I've gone into studios, like Jason said, and I've helped you know run their kind of numbers and look at your 
you know, how many teachers you have in your budget and how long you can have these hours and you, you can make it work. You really can. I was I'm glad you brought that up, Addison, because since we only have a, uh, like 15 more minutes, Court, I wanted to touch on, you mentioned earlier, I think in your intro, Addison, about the fears around ballet from, yeah. from people who are not in the ballet world. Can you speak a little bit to that and how, you know, you already mentioned how, you know, people might listen and say, well, I don't have six days a week and I don't have another studio and I, I live in Nebraska right. somewhere with, you know, 10 people in the town. Like, I don't have a ballet teacher like this. Right. Are there any anything you can think of to help those listeners who may want to make some change, but maybe feel threatened or yeah. unable to do so? <laughs> Absolutely. And you know what? It's hard to start with your teenagers. You know, yeah. if your teenagers grew up and they've never competed ballet, and then you're going to throw a ballet number on them, that's hard. Terrifying. And that's where I'll <laughs> say that might not be doable. Let's just be honest to make your 15 year olds compete in ballet at this stage. You might have a couple, but I think start younger, start when they're five, six, seven, do a, one little ballet number, um, start the choreography with them, start a little program. I think the fear, there's a couple of fears and I'm judged next to people and a variation will come out and they don't know it's a variation, which is, you know, we can't know everything. I don't know everything in hip hop. And I'm not going to expect every judge to know everything in ballet because we're all we have different backgrounds. So I've had a judge, you know, next to me score a key tree variation very low on the choreography score because mm-hmm. he said, uh, I said, why did you give that that score? It's repertoire. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's really repetitive. He did all the time. It was formulaic and it was super it was short. short. And, so I think that's where some of the fear comes in. It's right. like one, it gets judged very harshly because there's so much to pick apart in ballet. I mean, it's just easy. To- because we know it, because because everyone knows it, Addison. I just want to jump in there and yeah. say, it's easy to pick yeah. apart because everyone knows what it's supposed to look like. Right. So yes. there's, mm. there's, there's that that is a huge fear yeah. factor for people. So you can't get away with slop on the, on the <laughs> stage. Right. And when something goes wrong, you can't emote out of it. Right, right, <laughs> you right. You can't right, pedestrian right. walk and emote out of it. Yeah. It's just, yeah. it's raw. It's real. It's raw. So that's, that's a fear is we won't win. It'll be disappointing, whatever. One fear is the judges won't be knowledgeable in ballet and they'll pick us apart or they'll judge score. You have to kind of go into it, not caring. Like we're, we're competing ballet to get us excited about it, to put it in our repertoire. It also is great for a panel of judges, a competition to see your studio bringing everything. Yes. And that goes it. for tap and that goes for everything. Versatility. I mean, then you, it's like, wow, they're competing ballet. And I've, I've judged some, you know, non-ballet competitions where I've seen a studio do a lovely ballet number. Did it get the highest in overall? No. But I just, I remember sitting and like, just so appreciating right. and like saying, just thank you. Yeah. Thank you. This may not score the highest, but thank you for being conscientious enough to give your students this piece. Right. You know, bring someone else in. There's so many things like we can Zoom choreography now. Right. If you can't afford to fly someone in, Zoom somebody and get a little sweet piece and just have one number for each age group and just start there. Start the. Sorry, as I want, I think this is a this is an important topic. I think because schools forget that we talk about appropriateness in dance and appropriateness at certain ages. Mm-hmm. Y'all, if you just do ballet-based yeah. choreography from your three-year-olds <laughs> right. all the way no. to your 11-year-olds, you are going to be safe. Yeah. 
You will never exactly. be. You will never be accused of being inappropriate. You will. You'll never. You will never get that criticism. No one will ever say the costume is too racy because you can. You can have a bare midriff doing tondus, and no one's going to say a thing because there's nothing suggestive about the movement, right? right. So, so yeah. you know. So I think that's a very important thing. Is and so Addison, yes, the little ones. Focus, start it with the little and to get them used to it because, and you will avoid the the inappropriate stigma of any kind of choreography. And judges Mm -hmm. do like it. I mean, I, as a judge, I agree with Addison. I've sat there, but also as a director, I've been on that receiving end of the judges, a judge coming up to me and saying many, many, many occasions, Courtney's even come up and said it to me. (laughs) Mm -hmm. We appreciate that your dancer's training. You know, it's, it's like, and for me, as a studio director, that is a win. I don't care about the awards. We know that there's a political element to awards, and, and you know, at competitions, we're not we we're not all we're not naive to it as studio owners yeah. and studio directors. For me, the win is the acknowledgement from the people that matter about the yeah. quality of the training that is present in the dancers on the stage in that moment, mm-hmm. and that is such yeah. a win. And for the and also for studio directors, this is important. Parents notice it. Uh-huh. Your kid, your kid, I can, from, from day one at my, at my school, my parents have always come up to me and said, I know they didn't win, but we can see the difference in their training. Mm. Yeah. And it's great advertising for your studio. It's great advertising for your studio. Look, they take it seriously. They bring ballet. Right. And, and I think that's so important for, your, for, your, for the morale of your, of your community that you're creating at your studio, for right. them to understand and respect and to be able to see when you put your dance up on the stage with other dancers, that there's something different about them. There's a polish, yeah. there's a refinement, there's a finesse. That even through, like from your five-year-old, we get it, we're getting this, and it's, and it's really coming through. And that's because there's a consistency in the fundamental training that's happening. And if competition and winning is the goal, if you look at the dance awards or like Revel, you know, nationals or NYCDA nationals, I can point out every one of those kids takes ballet seriously. They go to The Rock in Vegas. They go to Stars in Florida. They go to a competition studio, but that has a really good ballet program. Totally. And I just, I I know it. Yeah. Yeah. Or they're supplementing. They're going down the street. Yeah. Yeah. But if that's the goal with competition. I always applaud a studio that brings ballet to the stage. I thank them at the very top of my critique. And I think it's really refreshing for me as a judge, because I've said this many times on different episodes of the podcast, as judges, we get to know your studio throughout the weekend. We know what your favorite style is. We know what, sometimes we can pre-predict what's going to happen in a dance. What your favorite step yeah, is. Yeah, what your favorite, sometimes. what your go-to is. We know that you might wear one shoe on what stage the instead of two. the thing is. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> and then we also learn what your studio habits are, which let's be real, all all studios have some different types of habits here or there. We're actually yeah. doing a, yes, even the ballet studios. And we have a, an episode coming up a little bit later Guilty. in our season that is the top 10 studio habits that we're going to pull the judges and talk about. But anyway, I think it's really refreshing when, when studios are willing and able to bring ballet to the stage because then I can really see that foundation and those fundamentals and the basics. And I can really see what their training looks like without the disguise of falling off out of that pirouette and making a reach out of it in lyrical or whatever it is. 
it's like and you you're said, gonna it, give good feedback that we need. Yeah, exactly. You're give good feedback off it's of a that, great, that we need. It's a great opportunity it's for win, win. teachers and studio yeah. owners to really see a whole nother, oh, I never I never caught that habit or that technical flaw right there. And I wouldn't have seen it right. probably if you didn't show me the ballet dance at competition. So I always uh, applaud right. the And don't we want the feedback? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We want that good constructive criticism. Yeah. I think I think a lot of a lot of studios do and I think some don't, yeah. you know, but I do think that it is yeah. important, like as a studio owner or a teacher, if you hear constantly on your critiques that you're getting back, dancers need more ballet, more ballet, more ballet, then maybe it wouldn't be a bad idea to have somebody like Addison or Jason or any of, I'm sure there's many other people in the industry that would like be willing to come in and just kind of take like an overview glance of like, what is your, what is your current structure of your competitive training? What are you trying to achieve? Like we said, which I think is so, so great to approach. And then how can we make that possible through through our ballet program is the ultimate goal. And if you are searching for a ballet instructor and you feel like you're in a part of, you know, the world or America that, you know, I, I'm just having a hard time finding a ballet teacher. I know Jason and I, we we know everyone. <laughs> like we, we know so many people. Reach out to me, DM me, send me an email. Like I'm so community based and love to make connections and to help people. I'm happy to do that. I think the other thing, Addison, is also we have access to so much information. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. I mean, you know, I, I think I think that as, as teachers, I think that if we're not utilizing our resources like YouTube. Right. right. I mean, okay, we need to be a little bit more analytical and using it. So it's like, say, say variation work. Why is that variation better than the other variation? Well, go study it. Mm -hmm. Break it down. Take the time to do that because we could, because. You can do that. I mean, even if you if, even if you don't feel your ballet training is where it needs to be to get your kids where it needs, I bet you you're wrong. I bet you if you just take a little bit of time to do the work, to look, do the research, look, that that get that little bit of information, compare and contrast, you empower you will you can empower yourself to be completely impactful to your own students without having to find that super like incredible ballet ballet person that you right. think that you need. You probably don't need it. You just need to know that you need to highlight the elements that your dancers need, and then you need to figure out how best to teach it. And there are tons of resources available on how to achieve that. Or provide provide some opportunities for your ballet teacher to continue their education. Send them to a certification. Get them PBT certified. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. And because of the, there have always been so many, obviously, really great ballet intensives and different teacher trainings. and things throughout our industry. But I do think that because there is a bit of a rise in popularity of the ballet competitions becoming a part of the competitive dance world and the, and then also the rise of competitive dance across studios, I think that there are even more resources now than ever before. So I really hope that people can take advantage of that more wherever you're based around the country. Yeah. Oh yeah. There's some great ones. There's, you know, ABT has now their program and there's some great uh, there's a really good Cuban teacher program that's that's just really good, um, like with the muscle memory and the mind and body. So it's like a Jason said, and now so many things are online after COVID. That one silver lining was it gave us access to Zoom and, you know, alternative learning, online learning. So it's just sometimes we get 
you know, lazy is not the best word, but sometimes we get lazy in our own teaching or we just get kind of stuck. In I, I, we do get lazy. <laughs> we do. Addison, don't, don't, don't. We, we can call ourselves out. out. We do it. get lazy <laughs> and we got to snap ourselves out of it. You're right. That's exactly what happened. Yeah, you can. And then you can get excited about it because you're, it's like you're young, you're young again and you're learning again. And we all, we all need to always continue to learn. It's just going to make everything so much stronger in our studios. It's exhausting. That's why Addison's no tired. What we do is exhausting, and so it's, so sometimes it's easy just it to is. phone it in and and to and 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 still give a decent class. And I think that you know we can I can own it. I do it, and we all yeah. do it. This has been so great. I've loved chatting with you, and I think this has been so informative. I hope all the listeners out there maybe will approach structuring your schedule differently next season as you are revamping it over the summer. Maybe walking into ballet class with a new perspective. Uh, next week or tomorrow whenever you're taking ballet again so thank you so much addison and jason for sharing your knowledge and advice and wisdom to our listeners around the world who are tuning in we are so grateful for you spending your day with us and how we usually have our guests lead us out on making the impact is to just leave one final bit of advice tips feedback love encouragement uh, in regards to our topic today, which is developing a ballet program for competitive studios. Ready, set, go. Well, okay. I would say back to the fear, like, let's just, let's let those fears go because we don't want regrets. We don't want to get at the end of life and like, why didn't I, why didn't I take a risk and, and do those programs with my kids? And why didn't I take them to, you know, those ballet competitions? Or why didn't I, you know, grow that program a little more? I would say just dive in today. Just do it. It's, you know, some, some things we know that in our dance industry, it's just showing up, showing up to the audition, showing up for your kids and doing it, you know? And so I would, I would encourage you to look at ballet, not as this elitist, snobby and cold, which of course it can be at some points, but look at it as this beautiful foundation is used a lot, but it really is. Look at this beautiful foundation for our kids' technique. Let's look at what we want to do for them. Let's look at the like arc of the goal that I want for my students and how can I implement that ballet training and those ballet opportunities for my kids and then start getting excited about it. Stay up one night and kind of research and what different programs can I go do and what can I get certified in? And maybe I could bring a small certification to my studio teacher training and then maybe I could have a ballet and contemporary intensive and it, it can make even more money for your studio you know anytime you add opportunities and you tack on to it it can bring more money to your studio so it really is win-win it doesn't need to be separate the separate elitist thing and it really can make your studio bloom and i hope you bloom as well and we're here as a community uh reach out to me i'm on everything and reach out to me if you need help and if you um, want help with your studio i'd be happy to come yeah, I echo everything um, Addison just said. I think that she's spot on. There's very little we don't agree on, which is nice working together. I wanted to share my philosophy with which I run my program at my school because I think that it, it could resonate. And it's, I don't care what you want to do with dance at the end of the day. I want you to be able to have the choice to pursue it professionally if that is what you desire. And I think that that philosophy for me is about empowering these dancers to have the opportunity to choose. 
Not everyone's going to become a professional dancer, but I feel as studio directors, we have a responsibility to our hall to make sure that they can have that choice if that is what they would like to do. And that is super empowering. I'm not pursuing professional dance because I choose not to pursue professional dance, not because I don't have the skill sets to be able to pursue mm -hmm. professional dance. And I think it's a, that's a very different place. It's a realistic place for them to be because there's nothing worse than selling a false bill of goods to kids saying, you can become, become professional dance, but you haven't provided for them the appropriate training that's going to allow them to take that next step. So we have to be very reflective as student directors and teachers and make sure that we are sending the right messages to these, to these dancers and giving them the right skill sets that are in line with what we are preaching about the industry and about what our studios can provide for them in terms of what that end goal looks like for our dancers. And then as far as training is concerned, my final thought would be keep it simple and less is much more. And the repetition is the mother of all teachers. Those are all, those are things we've all heard over and over again. And I'm going to say it and I'm going to share it because that is where the magic happens. Magic happens in repetition. Magic happens in simplicity because then we can really see the nitty gritty details of the work. If we get too bogged down in choreography, in technique, when we're doing technique, the kids become obsessed with coordination and become obsessed with the sequence of movement rather than becoming obsessed with the technical execution of the movement and the intricacy of that technical execution. And if we're only doing ballet once or twice a week, that should be the focus and not the choreography or the coordination or the sequencing. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode all about developing a ballet program for competitive studios. Be sure to follow our special guests on social media. You can find Addison at The Salty Ballerina and Jason at Jason Kuzner. Don't forget to follow Making the Impact on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and pretty much everywhere you listen to podcasts. IDA's virtual competition is back, and registration is now open for our solo-only event. Compete alongside dancers from around the world and receive detailed, personalized critiques from a pre-screened IDA judge. And new for the season, your critique will include up to 15 minutes of start and stop style feedback, plus a new broken down score sheet to help dancers really see exactly where their score was impacted. Your entry includes a virtual competition patch in the mail, and all dancers are eligible for individual special awards, overall sponsored prizes, and the chance to recompete for brand new judges in our Top 20 Challenge live stream event. Entries are only $55 to participate and registration is open until April 30th, 2022. Head to our website now to learn more and register your solo at impactdanceadjudicators.com slash virtual competition. We can't wait to see your dance. Coming up next in season three, stay tuned for student choreography, the next studio spotlight feature with Studio Blue and mental health for dancers. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next week. Until then, keep dancing. Bye.